0: Gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Daniel,
1: <laughs> greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, today, we've got a uh, another installment, and in what we might just as well call an occasional series. Um, at this point on this podcast, because we still have to get Charlie Cook in here for us to have this argument that we have over text in, in uh, on the podcast um, on this trial balloon thing that I floated a couple of weeks ago now about third parties and, um, and a sort of punitive, rational, conservative party that whose goal wasn't necessarily to govern, but so much as to put the Republican Party back on track and uh, we'll put in the show notes. You can read it if you haven't read it and all the various other stuff. We'll put that in there too. But um, I wanted to sort of go bigger picture and bring in uh, a scholar who I'm a big fan of, who does a lot of work on some of these related issues, particularly um, on the role of how factions are going to be um, more important than they've been for most of our lifetimes. And so we have, we have Steve Tellers coming in And he is uh, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins. He's also a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. And he is the author of uh, quite a few uh, great books. The most recent, which we talked to him about when it came out, uh, was his book on, uh, which was co-written by, with Rob Seldin on uh, Never Trump. And I quote it often about his chapter on the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement. And then, uh, but he also wrote it, uh, the captured, wrote the captured economy with, uh, Brink Lindsey a few years ago and public choice nerds, um, should definitely go check it out. So with all of that said, Steven,
0: welcome back to the remnant. Happy to be here. Uh, as they say, long time listener and, uh, first time, second time caller. second time.
1: Yes. So, um, why don't we just sort of start big picture? Um, And, uh, why don't you just sort of explain what you mean by like, we'll put it in the show notes. You wrote a piece in national affairs. I read it a while back. The future is faction. Um, what do you mean by the future is faction and how does it sort of relate to this contretemps on the right about, uh, third parties?
0: So basically I think we have a a bunch of different conversations all going on here at once. Um, and sometimes we're thinking that, they're all one, but in fact, there are a couple of different conversations. So one that I think both you and I agree on is that right now, a lot of our problems come down to the fact that we have a um, separation of powers, constitutional system, uh, and increasingly parliamentary parties, uh, and that there's a basic conflict. Between, uh, between those two, uh, and a lot of our problems can be reduced to that. And so one of the questions is, how do we get to uh, a system with something more like um, the more heterogeneous parties that actually fit with our constitutional order? And so that's one of the questions, right? And that there's a, a particular problem that you're trying to solve in the Republican Party, that the Republican Party has gotten too parliamentary, too centralized, um, and therefore too easily captured by a demagogue and a demagogic uh, faction associated with it. Um, And that our system uh, needs more play in the joints legislatively, right? We need to have the ability to have um, multiple different kinds of coalitions formed, um, and that very different sort of coalition formation. Also uh, reduces some of the degree of partisan rancor, because one thing that means is that you know that the person who's your enemy today could be your friend tomorrow, and you don't necessarily want to go full scorched earth when you may need that person later on, right? And that's one of the things that makes separation of powers works uh, work with parties is that you have that some of that shifting coalitions, right? But right now. Right. A lot of our conflict comes from the fact that everybody in either party knows that they don't actually need anybody in the other party. So there's no reason to go um, not to go full scorched earth. So I would say that's one way to think about our, our problem, right, is that that's what we're trying to get to. Right. We're trying to get to a system of more heterogeneous parties, shifting coalitions, And with that, more of the kind of deliberation that um, the founders wanted out of our separation of power system, uh, rather than a a system where just party leaders determine the agenda, they write legislation uh, in their office, and then all of the members of the party are just treated as kind of cannon fodder for those party leaders, Right. right? That's not the kind of parties that work with our constitutional order.
1: And we both agree that primaries play an important role in that process, but we don't have to get in the weeds on that right
0: now. Right. Yeah. So yeah, right. right. Primaries. I think most, one of the things that most distinguishes political scientists from normal people, um, <laughs> is that, uh, we, you know, um, uh, famous, a famous political scientist said that, uh, democracy, uh, was about, uh, you know, uh, was about democracy between parties, not democracy within parties. Right. And that, in general, we like the idea that parties are actually organizations that have some internal integrity and can, uh, you know, have some sort of organizational structure that allows them to think about the long-term interests of the party rather than simply an instrument of whoever happens to show up in low turnout primary. Now, again, that's not the only thing that's wrong with our system. Sure, um, right, but um, but that but you know primaries. Are a are a bad you know we're a bad innovation um, and it would be a good idea to get rid of them. Nobody knows how to uh, how to do it, um, and therefore my judgment is that we're going to have to figure out some way to work with primaries rather than just complaining about how awful they are. And that gets us to this point about factions, right? Which is right now, especially in the Republican Party, but I think in the Democratic Party too. Um, the only people who show up in most primaries are the most ideologically, um, intense, right? That's a little bit different in places like New York city, where the primary is tantamount to the, you know, you get in some sense more turnout in the primary than general election because of all the actions in the democratic party. Um, but. That one of the ways to solve this problem is to get some kind of um, mobilization, uh, not just by the most ideologically extreme, or in this case, the most sort of um, uh, uh, populist nationalist in the Republican Party. Uh, somebody has to be out there organizing the normies, right? And I think that's the one way to think about the problem in both the Democratic and the Republican Party. And this is a long-term problem of democracy, right? Which is, it's actually hard to mobilize normies. It's hard to mm-hmm. mobilize people of relatively normal political opinions because um the preference intensity is always at uh the polls. Now, in the past, you should know, back up some- for that. I'll,
1: I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. Just, just to clarify on that, it's also because you know this is like a standard conservative argument I used to make all the time: is that low vote turnout is not a bad thing necessarily because high voter turnout is a sign of profound dissatisfaction with the status quo. Lots of, we can call them normies, um, works for me. Uh, a lot of normies, whether they're liberals or conservatives, Republicans or Democrats, they don't internalize and see their political position as central to their identity, and they don't see politics as the answer to their biggest problems because their lives are going pretty well, right? Their they're, Their problems are tied up with, Career issues or family issues or things that they don't look to Washington to fix. And that makes them less likely to look to Washington or to look to politicians to fix their problems. That's one of the psychological reasons why it's hard to organize them, right? Is that? Yeah.
0: So I have a slightly less psychological interpretation of lower moderate participation um, mm-hmm. than, than that would imply, right? I think there's something to it, right? Sure. Um, now, what one problem is the people who we define as moderates? Most of them are actually cross pressured voters, rather than people who are in some sense centrist across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, you know, there's a huge group of people who are, you know, kind of economically activist and and on social issues are more conservative, right? On abortion mm-hmm. or crime or other and those issues, right? There's a huge group of those voters. Uh, and then there's also a group that you might think of as sort of Bloombergian or Acela or th- those kind of voters right. who are actually a relatively small number. We know a lot of those people, right? But they're right. actually not a big part, but they're a big part of the donor class, right? right. Um, neither of those are really moderate in the sense of having moderate positions across the board, right? They're cross-pressured. Um, and those are people who um, often don't participate. I think less just because of their general psychological orientation than the fact that they're not being organized, right? There's nobody out there who's actively trying to mobilize those people who are creating structures for collective action for them to get involved in politics, to coordinate their action or anything else, right? And that's one Mm -hmm. thing when you think about what distinguishes the people on the polls it's not just that they have a different psychological orientation or they have a different ideological set of positions, but they also have structures of collective action. Right. So I always joke that, you know, there aren't that many of the Jacobin reading Brooklyn lefty hipsters. Right. But mm-hmm. they're super organized. Right. You right, can get right. them. You know, they they have all kinds of mechanisms of um, collective action that can get them to show up, for example, in the AOC primary in New York. Right. Um, and so they're distinguished not only by their preferences, but also by the fact that they have lots of structures to actually get them out and to get them to coordinate their their behavior. And I think that points a little bit to the nature of what the answer is. Right. The answer is, you know, you can't do a lot about people's underlying preferences, but you can do something about their collective action, right? You can actually Mm -hmm. create organizations. That can subsidize their participation in politics and get them to um, uh, you know to actually act in some kind of strategic way, and that's what's mostly missing, and it's missing in both uh, in both parties, right? To right. to greater or lesser degrees, and that's a whole separate issue, right? So I think that's one thing. Now, again, we're so mostly so far talking about voters, right? We're thinking the faction is a faction of voters, right? There's another way to think about this, which is it's more a faction of actual working politicians, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That is the opportunity here is so, you know, if you look even in, you know, now under conditions of extreme polarization, there's still a group of three to four Republican senators um, who are somewhat off of where their their leadership is. Right. We can imagine, you know, that's uh, Murkowski and Romney and Collins and there's, um, you know, three to four, there's, you know, Tester cinema mansion, uh, in the democratic side, um, they could act not, you know, as people with a huge army behind them. Right. But they've got one vote each in the Senate. Right. If they all act collectively rather than just individually, that legislative faction, could actually be highly potent, right? And one possibility is that legislative faction could actually be the foundation of a faction out there in the actual country, right? They could start out as people who are coordinating just in the institution, and then they could gradually, once they realize that, you know, they've got some sort of pivotal power in the Senate, they could go out there and try and collect people to be part of their, their team out in the country. So it's not necessarily that you're going to start with a mass and then move into you know mm-hmm. into the institution it may be the other way around.
1: Well mansion and cinema are basically what you're talking about here, right? Is like mansion and cinema to a certain extent have acted as a faction of two, even though in reality we all know that they probably had a bunch of other senators really grateful, Maggie Hassan or whoever, grateful that they were taking all of the heat in these reconciliation negotiations. Um and on the filibuster stuff and all the rest. Um, But those two senators had, you know, outsized factional power, and it was a faction of two, right? Right.
0: Right. Well, so I would say the problem is, so I, I, you know, you know, I I think we need a better class of moderate. um, uh, Agreed. That one thing is, I describe their behavior as what you might call intransigent individualism. Right, mm-hmm. They're not setting the agenda. They're not saying, "Here's the things we ought to be talking about. Here's the things we ought to be doing. um the you know the The people who have organized the Senate, in this case, the Democrats, um are making bids, and then they're saying, no, that bid minus minus thirty three percent right or minus forty percent. But they're not saying, actually, we should be talking about something entirely different right um that he, you know here's the thing that we ought to be uh, ought to be doing. And as a condition of me cooperating with you on other stuff, we're gonna we're gonna do that thing too, right? They're not doing right, I get any that. I, agenda I, setting.
1: I was just making the point that just to, to your basic point about being able to exercise power, yeah. that in, a, in an evenly divided Senate, it's very easy to form a small faction of people who have the ability to block. And you, would, your argument is that they should also try to set. Right the agenda, but, you know, baby steps, right? First, first right. Comes, that, Well, well, well I
0: guess I think that the, the, you know, it's important actually to think about what's different about individualism and subtraction versus collective action and addition, right? I think those are that, mm-hmm. I think this shows that there is the possibility of, um, of significant consequential action by moderates. But right now again, most of the way that they think about first of all running for office right and then also acting in office is as individuals right They say I'm idiosyncratic, I'm different, I'm not right. like them, right but I'm also not part of anything else. Um, and I think that's the the one thing this points to is if they could act collectively Right, if they could actually say we're all taking a blood oath together that we're all going to stick together on this, um, there's a huge amount that they could do. Right, if you think about if just six senators all got together and did one of the two f- following things, right, one, they themselves formed a separate party. Right, it wouldn't be hard. You know, Matt Iglesias has talked about um, about this. Right, they could just get together and say we're the center party. Right, right, and we've actually left. Um, And from now on, everybody's got to bargain with us. The first thing that will happen is nobody could, neither party could organize Congress without cutting a deal with them, right? In essence, we would be in something more like European-style coalition government, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And they would say, okay, we'll let the Democrats run run Congress, but only on the condition that they do X, Y, and Z, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, as individuals, none of those people have that sort of pivotal power to do that right but they Mm -hmm. all get together and either act as two separate factions that have a deal together right or as a separate party then you know everything is everything's in their control right Mm -hmm. um they get enormous leverage out of that and not only that right so one they get to determine who controls congress and they get to say here's here's our our price right and their price could be one a dramatic change in congressional rules, right? So that the party leaders don't set the agenda anymore, right? You could say, look, now, you know, that they have to have relatively open rules on the floor so that various different kinds of strange bedfellow coalitions can be formed. Um, And that would allow them also to say, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that are on neither party's sort of the center of their agenda, right? But that we think should be uh, on the center of the discussion right and you and you know we we can imagine what those might uh might be my preference is um you know radical simplification of the tax code radical simplification of our social welfare programs um, i just published a big paper with Sam Hammond and Daniel Takish at the Center um called cost disease socialism that says we ought to have you know really enormous changes in our regulatory system to, uh, you know, to reduce the cost of basic goods of, of life, right? You can imagine a center coalition for whom those would be the central obsessions, and they would use their pivotal leverage mm-hmm. in Congress to force the rest of the, you know, either party to say, you know, you know offer us the best deal on this, right? right, um, right. But right now, as individuals, they don't have the ability to cut that deal. All they have the ability is to say is, I'm going to take my toys and go home if I don't get you to subtract. And and that's a lot less attractive. And I think if you just look at the bill, right, it's actually ended up with a much crummier reconciliation bill as a result of just playing the game through Mm -hmm. subtraction. So
1: have you uh, ever actually pitched this to any senators? (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I just told you know all those senators that I normally just, you know, kick back and drink whiskey with. I just I I'm always throwing it out to them. Um so I'm I'm working on a piece with Matt Iglesias um making this this argument. Um and we'll see, you know, that's where scribblers like us, you know, we we throw things out there and then occasionally something uh something sticks. Um but my well, I know for idea- a fact,
1: just so you know, I know for a fact that I can name senators that regularly listen to this podcast so you
0: know right okay well so So, you know maybe this this is where it's happening to go and take it yeah so um yeah so i you know i I think that's a good place to start um Mm. and now again i think that involves a lot of a very different mindset of how people think you're supposed to act as a moderate right when you think about how a lot of these guys think about getting elected they get elected um, not by any substantive moderation, right? Some alternative ideology that's somehow different than the existing Democratic or Republican ones, right? They run by simply saying, I know you know, some significant number of voters don't like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, so I'm just on some r- almost random set of issues just being a pain in the ass, right? right? And the fact that I'm showing that I'm being a pain in the ass is a sign that, I'm not just one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that is a as a um you know that may occasionally work for them as individuals, but it doesn't actually change the underlying balance of power in the political system that leads to both governing dysfunction and the um the fact that you know our current not actually pretty popular definitions of what left and right are are the dominant things that are determining what we're talking about in the, um, in our sort of, in our governing discussions. All right. So let's, so, let's okay, go ahead. Just finish the thought. Okay. No. And then, yeah. And the last thing I'll say is my view, right. So I have to get to the point where I dump on your idea. Mm-hmm. Right, so here, here we go. We're there. There's um, a great,
1: there's a, there's a bipartisan consensus that that's where that's the happy place. Yeah. Everyone lands dumping. Yeah, exactly.
0: on Exactly. My, my so I think that, um, the advantage of this is it does, you know, one of the things you have to do is get to some positive conception of what it is that moderates want, right? Um, that is, one of the problems I had with your idea is it seems still very dominated by dislike of what the dominant part of the Republican party, right and you wanted mm-hmm. to act as a veto on the most extreme and nutty forms of republicanism, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still also based on the idea that like good old-fashioned National Review conservatism is still great, and we're going to have that be our, our brand. Um, I think that's not a particularly attra- you know attractive vision. It's not clear what it is you're actually trying to get done with government, and it's not clear how you're changing the way that political institutions actually operate, whereas I do think this way of thinking about strategy – does get you closer to something that would literally change the way that institutions are operating, um, that's more in line with our constitutional order, and it allows you to introduce dimensions of what policy should be about that um, are more aligned with what I think the actual problems the country is facing, right? Mm -hmm. And that I think people are frustrated that, you know, we're not actually talking about. um, And this is a way of forcing that kind of um, uh, other, you know, additional dimensions of policy onto the public discussion. So,
1: so look, I mean, I, I, I think the idea as you propose, it is very attractive. I think the criticisms of my sort of idea are well-founded and well-taken. And, um, as are most of them, I mean, I, I, I thought I was being pretty clear that like, I'm just trying to like come up with something to do here, folks. Right. Because the current, you know, autopilot blows and, I'm very skeptical for the reasons Richard Hostetter, you know, famously laid out, very skeptical of, um, the role of third parties, but the criticisms of my argument or my tribal or whatever, some of them also apply to yours. It seems to me in the, in so far as you get these five or six or eight senators, this you know, gang of moderates if you want to call it and i'm i'm letting you use moderate freely and yeah. without any pushback because we need to call this group something um, yeah. you know and it wouldn't be my preferred term you know and all that um but that's fine for the purposes of this conversation that's fine but i don't want yeah. some of the sort of comment section type people thinking all of a sudden okay now jonah calls himself a moderate i don't but right. that said um all of these guys got to go up for reelection and as it currently stands, one of the great criticisms of, 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 of me, which I was fully cognizant of, and I knew it was coming, Eric Erickson, lots of people made, is that the two parties suck at almost everything except maintaining the duopoly of their control over state election laws. And if you left the party as a senator to go form this new gang or whatever party, um, part of your assumption is, is that these guys could get reelected. And it is not abundantly clear to me that they would make the calculation that you would want to make. So how do you fix that? Yeah. Oh,
0: okay. So this, so this is where Iglesias and I, I think slightly part company, although I, I don't think either of us are particularly confident in our own position on this. Right. Okay. So I think Matt, Matt thinks you need to form a just entirely separate entity with a separate brand that everybody joins. Now, I think for the purpose of operating in the Senate, there's a lot of advantages to that, right? About having a separate, you know, a separate brand so you don't have the temptation, you don't have the, <clears throat> the siren song pulling you toward the rocks of, you know, going back to your own party, right? You've in a way made the jump and you can't go go back, right? So there's advantages to that in terms of maintaining the kind of um, discipline you need in order to negotiate with the parties in order to get you that that, that pivotal power. On the other hand, I've actually always been on the side of um, thinking that the answer to this is intra-party factions, in part for the reason that you're describing, which is um, you know again you're going to have to get elected in a political system as you say that's organized around the two-party duopoly, and it makes more sense to say I'm a different brand inside of this existing party, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm going to run for office in that uh in that party. Um, but I'm gonna run as a as a different kind of Democrat, right? And a right. Democrat. I'm a, a way, what,
1: Republican or something, right? You know, right, or like, whatever,
0: right? Yeah. But one of the things that involves is saying we're pre-committing, right? That we're gonna we're gonna cooperate with this faction and the other party where the at least where the organization of Congress is concerned, right? We're not just going to vote for whoever the party leader is of the Democrat or Republican, right? That's the most important thing that's going to differentiate us, right? Is if you vote for Chuck Schumer, he's just going to vote for whoever, or if you vote for, um, you know, you can, you know, imagine any other uh, senator, right? That's not what we're going to do, right? That's our, us tying ourselves to the mast, is we're going to cooperate with the other party where the organization of Congress is concerned, and we're going to commit to saying that we're going to push x y and z issue together with the other party um as a condition of us cooperating right so but mm-hmm. we're not going to try and run as a third party which has all of the problems that third partyism involves now the problem is that strategy has got more moving pieces as you could imagine cuz it took me longer to describe it mm-hmm. so where the you know where coordinating in congress is concerned maintaining the kind of iron discipline you need in order to extract the best deal from the, you know, from whoever's going to organize Congress, it's 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 harder to do if you don't have that separate brand and institution. But for all the reasons you talked about, it makes more sense. Now, the other thing you could say is having, you know, a separate entity, whether it's a third party or it's it's two party factions in either either party. One thing that can also do is organize funders, right? You can imagine lots of wealthy people who are not comfortable with either party, but they, you know, they, they got money, they want to use it. Um, right now, they only really have a choice to support the Democrat or Republican Party. Now they could say, no, I'm putting all of my effort into supporting either the, you know, the moderate Democrats or the, whatever you call them on the Republican, the liberal conservatives, or whatever the the word you want to use is, right? And that's what we're putting our money into, right? And that we're going to use all our money to try to protect them in the primaries, as you mentioned before, right? Mm -hmm. That's our, you know, that's where we're going to try to, to do. And we're going to try to figure out a way also to create some, you know, larger mass, you know, organization, right? Where people can say, yeah, I want to participate in politics, but I want to participate as an ordinary Democrat or an ordinary Republican. But there's a thing now, right, that mobilizes people, that has garden parties, that does all the things that parties do, but is a separate organization operating within the structure of these um, these two larger entities, right? And so that's my preference, right, is, is at least to start with um, separate party factions that have a kind of agreement. And again, you think about that you know, your Bet Noir, the progressives, right? That's a little bit the way progressives worked in the early 20th century, right? Is there progressive Democrats? There are progressive um, Republicans, but they had a kind of agreement, at least on certain kinds of issues, to operate together in order to achieve their their ends within their own within their own parties, right? So I do think that is a way to think about as a as a kind of precedent for this is that's a way that sort of liberals of all parties can work together without actually having to create an entirely separate entity, or at least political entity, right? You can imagine public goods that those two entities would share, just like progressives created a lot of institutions um, that were progressive institutions, right, that, that progressives in each party could draw upon. Um, you could think about, you know, think tanks and voter lists and all kinds of other stuff. That they could share without actually having to have an entirely separate party of their own.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I mean, just to make it practical so people understand, because this as a as the the whiff of theoretical talk, like, um, uh, people have heard me, and I know you agree with me in in broad brush strokes about some of this, and I know Matt Iglesias does too. That there's an enormous amount of low hanging fruit in terms of urban Economic regulatory reform, that technocratic good liberals and 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 free market conservatives could meet in the middle on a whole bunch of things that would be good for poor people because it would be good for fixing housing, which would be good for zoning. You know, I mean, all these kinds of things where, you know, again, there'd be negotiations, but there's there's an enormous amount of sort of overlap among the wonks on the right and the left on some of this stuff. But the problem is, is you have one party cities that are, you know, about protecting entrenched interests and parts, you know, and all that kind of thing. And it becomes very hard to do. You could see a coalition on those kinds of issues. I mean, obviously, there's some federalism issues that make it a little hard, but you could see a real coalition that gets sort of Kempian enterprise zone conservatism and sort of gitchy goo good technocratic liberalism together to form a real sort of community of minds and, and leverage power in positive ways. I'm totally sympathetic to that. Um, you could also see factions form that are remarkably bad. Right. Um, and at least from my perspective, you know, when, uh, they're like, when Tucker Carlson says that, um, you know, he loved Elizabeth Warren's campaign platform. Um, one can see, and when you see Marco Rubio talking about, you know, his industrial common good policy stuff. And, and you have JD Vance talking about confiscating the property of people he doesn't like. Obviously the only thing keeping these people from working together is that who they dislike is, is the only thing they have in common or they don't have in common. And still you could see a coalition a, it's a very statist coalition forming as well. Right. There's no inherent, um, there's no inherent like reason that couldn't happen as well. What's your response to that? And then I have a bigger picture sort of start over question for you.
0: Yeah. So now, so in a way that's a little bit different question, right? Because the point is, imagine we had a legislature in which the leadership was not dominating the control of the agenda, right? So anything Mm -hmm. could happen, right? You could have any kind of coalition you wanted, right? One of the kinds of coalitions you would have would be uh it would be a lot easier to have an anti-free trade coalition right mm-hmm. that is again that we think about the sort of tucker carlson and the bernie sanders right um, right they That's could a good they example. could work yeah. more they could work more easily to do uh to do that and from my point of view you know china is a whole separate issue right mm-hmm. but um that would not necessarily be be great and we could think about a lot of other things right um, the general thing I would say is the main effect of having looser governance of Congress is um you would have a lot of things enter in the agenda that were not things in which one party was all in agreement on and they were all in disagreement with the other right That's the basic logic of right. a leadership dominated system is. The agenda is dominated by things where everybody, the majority, agrees, and they know right, and they know that um, uh, there's nobody on the other side. Uh, and and so one thing I think that would do is it would make it a lot easier for new issues to get on the agenda, right? Because right now hardly anybody is really thinking of doing kind of entrepreneurial policymaking. You're trying to think about, well, what's some weird coalition on which you can get like people on the other party to cooperate, right? Just you know, hardly anybody's doing that, right? So right. when you were, you know, when you were a boy chick growing up, um, you know, people in AEI or even heritage, when Stuart Butler was there, right, they were always trying to think about, oh, what's some, you know, thing, whether it was welfare reform or or housing or vouchers or whatever it is, right? They were always thinking about what's that policy where you could do that kind of magical entrepreneurialism. Right. And right. one argument I had is that the change we've had in Congress has also filtered back into the kind of think tank world, right? Which is there's just not much um, advantage to doing that weird entrepreneurial public policymaking if Congress can't actually do that, right? So one argument is you change the way Congress works, and then the supply side of ideas is also going to change, right? Because they know that there's there's demand for that. Now again, some of that is going to be bad. The other thing that's going to happen is You're going to end up having a lot more pork barrel spending, right? One of the reasons why you had all that pork barrel spending back in the 70s and 80s, it was it was so hard to put together coalitions that you had to go around buying off people one one by one. In retrospect, you know, there are worse things than that, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of good policy got passed by also buying off a lot of people. When you go and look at the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which was great, but it was actually full of just total scandalous pork barrel right. individual payoffs um but that that to me is better than uh than the kind of system we've got we've got now. Yeah, um, I, mean, I I've been and- saying for a long time
1: you bring back earmarks and that's the only way you're going to get meaningful t- entitlement reform is you got to bribe everybody with a rec center or a stadium or a you know or or a community college um in their district to vote for something that shaves off you know 20 cents off of every dollar of entitlement or whatever it is, you know, the the, the only way you're going to get that that kind of structural thing done is through a form of, you know, basically, you know, political bribery.
0: And the the other thing I would say is it's really hard to bargain across ideological dimensions, right? So one Mm -hmm. thing, if you look at the, you know, my all time favorite public policy proposals out there was Romney's child, um, child benefit plan. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was sneaky in that on the, Spending side, it was great, right? It was actually simple; it was administered through the Social Security Administration, not through the tax code. But it was largely funded by completely eliminating the state and local tax deduction. Mm-hmm. Now that you know that was the thing for Republicans and the thing for Democrats. What's interesting about that way of policymaking is it's a way to do cross-party policymaking that isn't just about watering everything down, which is what you can think of mansion cinema. Cinemaism is being right that you simply take what was actually a pretty good idea and you water it down until where it's actually kludgy and complicated and not very good. Instead, you actually give each party what they really want, right? Um, mm-hmm. And but but let them put that in the same deal, right? Democrats really want simple redistribution that's as transparent as possible, and Democrats like screwing big spending on states that are subsidized through the the federal tax code that seems like a lot more attractive way to do policymaking by letting each side get all of what they want, but on the thing that matters to them more, right? But mm-hmm. you can only do that when you have enough room in your coalition to actually screw somebody over, right? And you, to do something like what you just talked about, you know, on the Democratic side, you need to be able to do it without the California and New York senators, right? Because they're not going to like the state and local tax deduction, right? right. So that, that's the kind of thing that I think you can imagine in a world in which um, some of that pivotal faction has used their power to open up the rules to create a much more free-flowing system. But again, the only way to get there is that somebody's got to be annoying in a collective way, right? Um, That's Mm -hmm. the only way you're going to get it. You're not going to get it through intransitive individualism.
1: So, I mean, I'm with you on, as a general conceptual matter that the sort of what you're ascribing to cinema, like I, I, I'm grateful cinema is there, but I, I I I get your point. You know, I always used to say that, you know, that sometimes the compromise position is worse than either side's position, right? I mean, like if we have a, the argument I used in my second book was like, if um, if I think we need a bridge over this canyon and you don't think we need a bridge over this canyon, the compromise <laughs> right. position of building half a bridge is dumber than either position, right? Right. Well, I mean, right,
0: right, right. I mean, the reconciliation bill, at least as far as I can tell what's in it, is like, seems like, you know, half a bridge all the way down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a whole mm-hmm. bill full of half of bridges. Right. Which is not, which is obviously not. Is, a, I think also leads to public cynicism, a lack of policy legitimation, which is also part of, part of the sort of general systemic problem we have with our political system beyond the problem of polarization
1: right. All right. Well, so uh, that's, that's the segue I'm looking for. Aha. Uh, let's, um, we, 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 we got your, um, denunciation, ritualist denunciation of my position, and we got your theory of how to fix these things. Um, so let's take a bigger picture, you know, step back. You, you say rightly, I mean, I agree. I, I, uh, this podcast stands for nothing, if not p- opposition to monocausal explanations of anything. Uh, but you say that the the primaries are not the only source of our problems. And I agree with that entirely, but they make most of our problems worse, which I think you agree with. And, um, but what is your, I mean, what is the story? It's, hey, I'm sitting next to you on a plane and I'm not a poli sci geek or anything like that. And, and you have a few minutes, to you know the movie's going to start soon but you have a few minutes to explain why the sort of Madisonian vision of of factions both horizontally and vertically across the country um to, vying with and against each other to produce from bottom up uh legislation you know i mean like i keep trying to tell people the the schoolhouse rock video on how a bill becomes a law doesn't look anything like what's going on right now, right? Where leadership just imposes something like tablets to the masses. Um, It doesn't come, these ideas aren't coming out from the hinterlands and working their way up through democratic processes. They're all top down. Um, Nowhere in that cartoon or in the federalist papers or in the constitution is the word framework, um, a meaningful (laughs) or existent term. So what is your explanation for how, you know, uh, to the layman for how we got to this position where Congress doesn't defend its own prerogatives, where the faction, the idea of faction, checking faction um, uh, doesn't seem to be working the way it was supposed to, in part because factions aren't regional anymore. And, um, and why these parties seem so durable, even though they're so weak.
0: So you get 30, 40 seconds on that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Right. So in the past, one of the things that led to internal party heterogeneity, as you mentioned, was um, was regionalism. Right? Uh, right. One. Right. People had different sources of policy information. Right. They were getting. So, you know, when I was uh, when I was a boy, like a little boy, um, my my fa- my mother's side of the family are from South Carolina. Right? And so, you know, they had a very conservative you know, family. Um, uh, And, you know, but every day, my grandfather would sit at the breakfast table and read the state, which was the, you know, the publication that came out of Columbia, which was the big paper in, in South Carolina, right? And most people did. Most people, that's where they got most of their information from. And so it was easier to develop a very geographically specific brand, right? Um, increasingly, those sources of information have eroded, right? And what's replaced them is national sources of, um, of, uh, of you know, branding and ideology and everything else. Um, and so it's hard to say, I'm, you know, John Tester is, is testing it, right? How far along you can be a Montana Democrat, right? That was really how people used to describe it. It's just, just a purely, you know, state-specific brand. Right. But those are really hard to maintain. Now, the argument that Rob Saldine and I made in the Futures Faction piece was that doesn't mean that it's impossible to run as a distinct brand within your party. Right? But you have to run not as a state-specific brand, but as a national factional brand. Right? You have to be able to say, you know, I'm running in Montana. But I'm not like those other Democrats you've heard of. I'm right. like that minority factional Democrat that you've also heard of that is also present in all the national media where everyone's getting. So in some sense, you have to replace those state-specific brands that people once had with national factional brands. So national, you know, the nationalization of parties is an un—you can't reel that that movie back, right? But you can create national factions. Now, part of that is. You do need, again, to go back to my point. You need collective action. You need structures that people can actually participate in, that they can donate to, they can do all the things that people need to do to create those distinct brands. Right? The DLC at one time kind of functioned that way. Um, you know, it was, I, I think of that as the first kind of version of of what this would uh, would look like. Although I think it would look differently under current conditions, right? But it would allow voters to say, oh, okay, I've heard, you know, when I watched the news or read the newspaper or whatever it is, I heard about these other guys, these sort of centrist Democrats, right? This guy's running under that brand. I can be sure that if I'm voting for him, I'm not actually voting for Nancy Pelosi, right? I'm voting for something else, right? And And that's
1: We we should just explain to listeners, uh, So, and I also have to do this as a former uh, employee of Ben Wattenberg, Um, the DLC was this centrist democratic party within the party. Sort of, again, I I see what your point about how it's sort of like a, a faction unto itself that, um, had what were still a, a not entirely expired species of politician who were Southern Democrats mostly, but not entirely. Um, and they were trying to yank the party back from, uh they would argue from it's the left wing brand that caused it to keep losing presidential elections. Um the Wattenberg part comes in is that Ben was one of the founders of the Coalition for a Democratic Majority, which was the precursor to the Democratic Leadership Council. Um and uh people forget now, but both Al Gore and Bill Clinton were leaders of the DLC. And one of the genius things that Bill Clinton did, um was when he picked Al Gore, which was a very weird pick at the time, he picked another young Southern Democrat, was he was doubling down on a brand that he wanted rather than trying to, like, uh, diversify the ticket the way, say, Kennedy did with Johnson or something like that. So anyway, I just wanted to sort of get that out there yeah, so, a lot of people yeah, don't know what it yeah. is. So
0: let, yeah, so let's go back to, and again, why I think the DLC is a, you know, it was like a transitional form. That's not what we're going to be talking about, right? Is it was really a combination of on the one hand, a bunch of people who were the remaining people who had state specific brands, right? There were a lot of people who were still, you know, you know, it's hard to remember, but, you know, Dick Gephardt was actually one of the founders of the DLC too, right? And he was running as a sort of Missouri Democrat, which meant he was a little more conservative on social issues, even though he was highly laborist on economic issues. You know, he was also in the party with people who were like Sam Nunn types who were, you know, moderate on racial issues, you know, con- conservative on armed servicey kind of stuff, right? So there were a whole bunch of people who had actually very different state-specific brands, and it was a little more like a confederacy, if you think of it that right, way, right? right? right, right. I-, I think in order to break through the nationalization of politics, that either of this Democratic or Republican factions is going to have to be a much more coherent brand than the DLC had, right? Much less of a confederacy and more like an actual coherent national organization that runs on a single brand, a single set of, of, of policy positions, a single set of strategy, all you know, all that other stuff, right? And I think that's what those factions are going to have to look like. So the DLC was a transitional form, and this is going to be much more nationalistic than than uh, than confederal. Now, again, the problem with that is. In general, a lot of these moderates are so used to individualism, right, um, that it's hard for them to imagine actually giving up some of what they need in order to create a coherent national brand that actually people can recognize. And they know that if they're voting for it, they're also not voting for the dominant part of the party they don't like, right? So in your thing, in the Republican Party, people need, you know, there's a certain set of, you know, Bucks County, you know, voters, right? who would rather have, uh, you know, kind of tax-cutty, deregulatory, not particularly critical race theory-ish, you know, Republican Party, but they just can't, you know, they they view the rest of the Republican Party as ritually unclean, Mm -hmm. right? And the advantage of this is it allows them to vote for a Republican, right? But a Republican who doesn't, you know, you know, trait them up by being associated with them, right? Because they can say, oh, I know those Jonah goldberg republicans you know while they're they're not democrats and they're fighting against democrats they're also spending all their time also attacking the sort of you know the trumpists Mm -hmm. right and i think that can work in both parties the main thing i would say is you know any kind of collective action and this is to go back to your point about public choice earlier right collective action almost always depends in the first point on subsidy right somebody actually has to go there and you know make a big investment in creating collective action that isn't necessarily rational for themselves and that's where I do think you know there's a lot of very wealthy supposedly pro de- pro-democracy donors who wasted a huge amount of money supporting democracy in the abstract mm-hmm. as opposed to actually getting in the fight and actually creating and building power inside of one or the other party right I wish all of that that money that was been put into supporting democracy generally had just been put into, people actually getting into a knife fight in these parties for control. Even if they were going to lose, they were going to win enough to actually get some leverage inside of their parties and therefore within the political system as a whole. So I think yeah, the I, I, thing was, right. we we need a better class of rich people.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, one of the things that I find, you know, very disturbing about what is happening on, on the right. these Well, so like, you know, I have a lot of criticism, sometimes contempt for, for Democrats. Who can't get off of the play their their talking points about what was wrong with elections in 2019? And you know, you even had Zoe Lofgren when she introduced H- the the For the People Act, talking about how in the last election we had massive amounts of voter suppression, when in fact we had the biggest turnout in a century, no matter how you measure it, and their and all of the rules were were changed to make it easier to vote. Right, so. Um, and they can't get off of the talking points about what they think are wrong with elections that really don't apply to the actual threat to elections, which is what a lot of the Trumpist types are doing. And they're they're doing what you wish the pro-democracy people are doing, is they're sort of, you know, some are just sort of Trump cultists, some are like straight up QAnon types. They are working their way up in a sort of, from the bottom up, effort to put their Sort of election conspiracy theorist types into positions on election boards, s- state attorney, uh, state, you know, secretaries of state and whatnot. And their views are is that, you know, they buy into the big lie stuff. And meanwhile, the Republicans who maintain their integrity, Raffensberger and some of these other guys, um, they are getting it from all sides and getting very little support from anybody unless they go on like, MSNBC and trash Trump. But if they say Stacey Abrams is making it up about the election being stolen, they get attacked. Um, and so you're actually seeing the wrong factions following your advice about how to deal with party politics.
0: Yeah. I mean, but one of the things actually I was thinking about in this context is one of the things that a a center faction could do uh I think in very much the ways that the framers thought about, right, is it would make it harder for either of the two dominant parties to just steal an election, right? One Mm -hmm. thing you can imagine them doing is saying part of our blood oath together, right, is that we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna certify any election that, um, you know, that isn't actually what the voters want, right? So whichever way it works out, right, um, and that also sends a signal back further back, right, is right. why even bother trying to steal the election by, you know, putting up a different set of electors than the ones that people voted for if you know that there's a center faction who's going to veto that strategy, right? So I think that's where, just in sort of game-theoretic terms, the existence of that center faction, you know, whereas right now, you know, you might you might think, look, we, we could do it because eventually we might be able to put enough pressure on Ben Sasse to get him to go along with it, Right. Whereas being part of a center faction is a pre-commitment device right. that you're not going to do it, right? That you're right. not going to go along with it, and that's, I think, the thing that that you you need where the sort of preservation of democracy stuff is concerned.
1: So, I mean, I, I get the idea. I mean, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to dismiss it, but I just want to sort of broaden things out a little bit. One of the criticisms um, that Michael Brennan Doherty made, which I uh, to my thing, which I, I am, which I said in my response, I basically entirely agree with is that part of the problem with creating third parties or really any institutions these days, if you want them to stay loyal to a mission, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier about the, you know, the classic line about democracy between parties, but not within parties is that it's very difficult not to get sort of mission creep. And The institutions get taken over by the ambitions of the personality who take them over or by the political pressures from below that come from below. And um it seems to me that like the I I love the idea of pre-commitment on a a metaphysical, profound level in all sorts of ways. I think democracy depends on pre-commitment. I'm a bit of a weak tea Chestertonian that I think, you know, tradition is democracy for the dead, as he put it, you know pre-commitment you know on the constitution all sorts of things is hugely important but we live in an age where there is very little binding power to pre-commitment anymore um and uh you know what is the enforcing mechanism i mean first of all like like what is you study institutions you study politics you know what do you what is your explanation for the inability of institutions generally to be able to bind people to their interior missions um, and not be used for the personal individualism that, you know, you're decrying?
0: Well, that's that's a big
1: question.
0: Um, I do, you know, I, I, in fact, I think you see that, that same phenomenon over a, a wide range of kinds of institutions, right? So let's not, we spend all our time talking about Congress and stuff and political parties. Let's set that aside for a second, right? I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the transformation of American professions, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's academia or public health or any of the other things, right? I mean, we've seen um you know an increase in the degree to which people think that the thing they should be doing with the professions is not pursuing their distinct professional identity or mission, but pursuing some larger ideological mission through those professions, right? Or the ideology simply gets read back into the definition of the profession, right? And so I think, in a way, um, you still actually have a lot of binding power, right? Those professions, if anything, are too homogenous, right? They're too able to get people to have to bend the knee, right? Rather than one of the things that actually professions are there for is to create a structure for legitimate disagreement, right? The d- disagreement within the context of a certain set of, of rules. And that, that I think has broken down, right? Um, as these things have become more, uh, you know, what, uh, what Oakshot is called a sort of, you know, an enterprise association mm-hmm. as opposed to a context for legitimate disagreement. Um, so I think where the larger point about institutions is concerned is we need more institutions that create context for, um, uh, for legitimate fact-based disagreement, right? And so I think that's that's a point. So And so in that sense, right, they, they actually need less binding power. They need less ability where everyone's just simply looking around to what everybody else is thinking in order to determine what their position is. And I think within the parties, to go back to the parties, right, if there were distinct party brands, right, so that the party actually had internal competition that was legitimate, that was understood, where the parties also understood that you know, they couldn't completely defeat that other faction because they actually needed it in order to get elected. Um, That I think would lead to a kind of healthier debate. It would lead to healthier internal party competition, right? Because you would have both parties would essentially be coalitions of frenemies. Mm -hmm. And that's what our older parties were, right? When we actually had, and that's, you know, that's the story of most of American history, right? Our current parliamentary parties are really very unusual, in at least having the aspiration to homogeneity um, uh, rather than being understood to be things where they both competed internally and then competed with the other side. I think that creates more play in the joints. um, And, uh, you know, that's going to depend on a little bit of an ability to actually bind inside of these factions, right? But be less binding within the overall institution of the party.
1: What do you think of the whole brouhaha over um, David Shore and popularism?
0: So, I, you know, I I mean, I'm a kind of a popularist, right? Uh, You know, I mean, in, in part, right? And this is, I think, is the best argument that Iglesias has had, right? Is if you really think the Republican Party is a menace to democracy and can't be trusted with power, then you should do stuff that's going to do everything you can to keep them from getting elected. Right. Whereas right now, one of the things you've seen, I think this is one of the reasons why each party in why you end up getting this, what what political scientists call a thermostatic reaction, right. Every time one party gets in, they immediately become unpopular. Right. right? I I don't think that's an automatic process, which is the way that people often describe it. I think it's a, a function of the way that parties govern when they get elected, right. When they get elected, their immediate strategies to think, how do we squeeze everything we can get out um, of this brief moment when we got elected, right? No matter how unpopular it is, rather than saying, why don't we actually see how long we can govern for, right? Instead of squeezing every bit of rent out of the fact that we've got control of these institutions, you know, and part of the problem, of course, is it's actually hard to discipline the people who want the party to do unpopular things, mm-hmm. right? And say, okay, you actually aren't going to get any chicken, right? <laughs> the, 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 you know, the, the plate's going to get to the year end of the table and there's nothing going to be on, right? Because we're trying to actually govern for an extended period of time. So I think that thermostatic reaction is not an automatic thing that voters do. It's that each party Keeps over-interpreting how much um, you know, how much the voters like them, and how much they want them to to do stuff. And I think one way to interpret the shore point is, especially under when, conditions in which you think one one of the parties is genuinely a threat to democracy, it's even more important that Democrats avoid the things. Now, again, some of that is also a little, just to be honest, as a little bit of uh, base stealing, right? Where some people try and import into what's popular, what they actually like. Right. So for example, I don't, you know, just to pick your own favorite hobby horse I, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to defund the police. right? Right. I could justify that on the basis of it being popularist. Right. But it's actually, I just think it's bad governance. Right. Um, you know, I, I think a big child tax credit is a good idea. Right. The truth is it isn't phenomenally popular as much as you would think. I still think it's a good idea. Right. So, to some degree, I think there's any of that popularism discussion mixes up what people think is strategically a good idea with what they think is actually good public policy. And so we all need to avoid the confirmation bias that comes into reading into what we want to what voters actually like.
1: Yeah, no, I I am I'm perfectly open to that point. And I think that that is sort of unavoidable, is that you know, it's sort of like my critique about foreign policy realism is that most of the people who call themselves realists are just people who lost a foreign policy argument and think that they lost it to a bunch of ideologues. And then when they get into power, they have ideas about how the world works and people call them unrealistic. And, um, but, uh, so I'm I'm sympathetic to the general point at the same time, I don't have a particularly passionate rooting interest for Democrats and, um, and, or for Joe Biden, I may have all sorts of passionate critiques of the Republicans and Donald Trump and all that kind of thing. So I think I'm a little immune to some of that stuff, but it seems obviously true to me that a Bill Clinton of this age would understand that his political interests would be advanced by picking more fights within his own party. Um, You know, uh, this is the way parties used to work is you're talking about factions within parties. You know, uh, Bill Clinton had his sister soldier moments. He attacked the bean counters when he was trying to appoint female attorney generals and all these kinds of things. And those had powerful signal effects for moderates, independents, and sort of liberal Republicans that this guy wasn't like those guys. And it is, I I have a hard time understanding how it is just not, there may, let me put it this way, internal to the Democratic Party, there may have been all sorts of good arguments. For why he had to do it this way. But at, from an outside perspective, when Joe Biden got his 19 Republicans to agree to an infrastructure, a traditional infrastructure bill, he had essentially fulfilled like the other major mandate that he claimed to have, which was to work across the aisles to get things done. He got something done that, that Republicans couldn't do in four years. Um, he should have, like, Georgia Costanza just left on a high note and left the room at that point. And instead he went for this linkage to the, the build back better thing, 3.5 trillion um, grand new deal kind of thing. And it seems to me that there are people within the party, democratic party. And this is David Shore. The other part of shore's argument, right? Is that there are elites within the party who in the leadership of the party who do not care particularly whether something is good politics, they just want to get their basket of things done. And I don't have a good theory of, I don't have a charitable theory about why Joe Biden hasn't done some of these obvious things. Um, Do you have a theory about why Joe Biden has decided to basically once again outsource everything to Pelosi and, um, and you know, Democrats in Congress, even though it's such a divided Congress?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that on the one hand, um, you know, Joe Biden really is a party man, right? More than anything else, I think, you know, Joe Biden has always thought that um, the most important normative principle is that the Democratic Party is good, right? Right. And that the Democratic Party is essentially a coalition of these various different groups, right? And that the purpose of the party is not actually to have some separate set of ideas, right? But to take whatever those groups agree on and then, you know, do a cross over it and then bless it. And then that's what it is, right? And so the idea of doing what Clinton did, right, of essentially... Po- you know poking the eye of some part of that coalition in order to send a signal to voters really violates i think something pretty fundamental about what he you know how how he thinks about the world right and so I think one of the reasons why in a way Biden really has kind of moved to the left is he 's gotten the idea that that 's where the democratic party is mm-hmm. right, and therefore his job is always to be where the democratic party is now. I think that's mistaking, right? Again, just look at the New York City primary, right? I don't think that's where actually the base of the voters of the Democratic Party is, but it is where this coalition of groups really, really is, right? And so I think that's a little bit of why Biden. The other thing to say is, I mean, and I, you know, none of us know exactly how to do this. Is you know he's old, right? Right.
1: Well, that's where I start and, getting into the know, uncharitable explanations, you know.
0: But I I don't I don't mean this to be you know my parents are old right um, but you <laughs> know when you get old right I mean one thing is right that some of that sort of grand strategic you know uh, you know move in order to you know shake everything up right that's a young man's game right um, you know the idea that oh, I'm going to turn over the chessboard right and I'm gonna I'm gonna you know y- you know win by totally you know moving around right what we think of as the basic moving pieces. I I just think you know Joe Biden's too old for that, right? He's he's just not in a place where he's going to you know make that kind of strategic Machiavellian masterstroke of the kind that Bill Clinton was able to do, right? And so I think it's that, and I think it's the it's Biden's relationship to you might think of as the legacy Democratic Party,
1: right? I I guess I guess part of the point. I think you're right. I think he's old. I think he's as I've said many times on here, he's um, a He's he's never been a centrist in the sort of sense of being sort of somewhere down the 50-yard line of American politics. He's always been a centrist as defined by the center of the Democratic Party. So he always wanted to make peace with both factions. So back when there was a major segregationist jackass sec- faction of the Democratic Party, he said things that I'm sure embarrass him today about that made peace with some of that stuff. And um uh and so, and now that the there's a major faction of sort of woke. Leftist, he says things today that I I would be embarrassed to sort of say, but that's his business. But I mean, I guess let's take it out of Joe Biden because he's sui generis. Um, uh, Terry McAuliffe is a creature of Clintonian politics, right? He was a major fundraiser for Bill Clinton. Uh, He was part of that whole New Democrat push. Blah 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 blah. Lots of he was the head of the DNC. The and you know, and uh, sort of like before you were talking about coming up with theories that support your policy agenda, I do think that there was a general approach of those guys, which was much more of a if it gets us elected, then it's a successful policy, right? And um, that was a big chunk of what Clintonism meant for a long time. And that's why Bill Clinton took time off from the campaign trail and he's running for president to um, you know, very ostentatiously execute a guy on death row who, you know, asked the guards to watch his pie for when he got back. I mean, he was so brain damaged. Um, and that's why, you know, he listened to Dick Morris about school uniforms and, you know, we can go down a long list. Um, Terry McAuliffe is a politician of his own right now. We're recording this a couple of days before the election in Virginia. And he managed to so completely misread where the Voters were on the ground where the climate was, 18 months of COVID and fights over opening and closing schools and masks, and then the critical race theory stuff. And instead, he went with his instinct, which was to just parrot the sort of teachers' union line on everything. And I guess what I'm getting at is it feels to me that there is some hardening of the arteries of these sort of elite, meritocratic. Blue state, whatever adjectives we want to come up on it, you know, come up with it, that that there's there's a kind of demo demosclerosis thing going on that is leading them to be worse at what they were once really good at. I mean, the the school board letter with Merrick Garland and all that in the 1990s, the Clinton administration was really good about coordinating interest groups. You know, requests with getting creating safe harbors for Title IX or whatever by working the bureaucracy, and it seems like the partisanship and the red versus blue tribalism has sapped some of the the nimbleness out of, of Democrats and all this stuff. I mean, it, it's a total fecal festival on the right. Don't get me wrong, but I find it very interesting that the people who are supposed to work know how to work bureaucracies know how to work interest group liberalism don't seem really good at it anymore. Am I just
0: Yeah. I mean I'm missing something. I mean one thing is, I mean, with McCall and again, I mean, you add enough people who were saying you're sweet generous and then you start, you know, not being able to use the term sweet sweet generous so well anymore because a general pattern. But I mean, I never thought he was a particularly skilled politician. Right. That he was the kind of person who, you know, was good at supporting a skilled politician right um when he was a kind of barnacle on bill clinton right he was a pretty good barnacle um but he needed somebody with that kind of shrewdness and you know low cunning that bill clinton had um but also right again there there was no larger faction that he could say well i'm i'm you know i mean that's gone right that moderate democratic faction that actually was providing ideas and support and separate funding and everything else right is really disappeared. And therefore it's easy to just get captured by where the mainstream is. Um, And I do think, you know, Democrats just missed, you know, a lot of elected Democrats in a way that, you know, again, there's lots of problems with Eric Adams, right? But the one thing Eric Adams has is an enormous amount of low cunning, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was clearly able to see where the lane was of actual voters, right? Where actual voters were, not the sort of, you know, people who were talking in his ear and the twittering and everything else, right? He knew where actual New York city voters were and what, what actually mattered to them, right? In a way that um, the other candidates didn't, right? And I think that some of this is just skill, right? Um, That Adams again has, you know, we, we may find out in the next couple of years, right? When people start doing more investigations or, whatever, that Adams had a lot of you know, iffy stuff, right? But often the people who are a little you know, weak on following all the rules are also the people who are, um, are good at figuring out how to play the, the angles in politics, right? McAuliffe, the other thing I think of McAuliffe is I don't think he thought he was going to have a competitive race, mm-hmm. right? I think he thought, well, there's no, not going to be any cost to me in not getting into some internal factional stuff Right, because I'm going to win regardless. I'm going to win even if I give the store away to the teachers' unions and everybody else. Right, and it turned out that um, you know that there's a lot of dry tender around for Republicans to run on. Right, including in places like Fairfax County and Loudoun County. It's not just you know that there's a bunch of people out in southwestern Virginia that um, that don't like the Democrats. Right, right, and I, I I worry that's the thing that's that's really building up for the Democrats in 2022 and 2024 is that they may have a hard time rowing back to a place, especially on social issues, not even really so much economic issues, but on social issues where, um, you know, normal voters in Bucks County and Fairfax County are going to be comfortable with them.
1: Yeah. I mean, that all sounds very plausible to me. I mean, at the same time, in the general election, McAuliffe, could have offered some simple boilerplate about, of course, parents have a role, which they do, right? Um, we can argue about how much of a role, that's fine. But there could have been some simple, very simple bumper sticker boilerplate that every politician is supposed to say about parents and schools. And it's not like the teacher's union would say, oh crap, we've lost Terry McAuliffe, even though he's about to get elected. Let's go in with, you know, with Duncan or whatever. It just seems that there's a lot of that kind of stuff where, and I think part of it is an influence of, Obama, because the base election strategy has seeped into a lot of places where you don't say things to win over the marginal middle voter. You say things to reinforce turnout from the base voter. And that, I think through osmosis has seeped in. I will say, I think there's a green shoot in what's going on in Virginia in that it's not a very nationalized election. McAuliffe has tried to make it one with Trump. It hasn't really worked. Instead, it's about schools. And you know, and then other local state things, but it's not about it's it's it, They can't merely make it about a Biden. They, they've tried and kind of failed to make it about Trump. And America would be better off if 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 state elections were about state issues going forward. And that gives me some hope that not everything is so nationalized.
0: Right. So, just the last thing I'll I'll yep. say on on this is that. Um, you know, I do think, I, I don't think Youngkin is a, you know, a particularly super skilled guy, right? No, um, I think he's better than expected, think, but he's right, not, but he's I, not, I think, yeah. but I, well, I think, I think he saw where the main chance was, yeah. right? um, that there are a certain number of voters who just are worried that the democratic party has just gotten kind of kooky. Right. And this is, goes back to my point that, you know, uh, you know, most voters are going to go back to what I think of as normies, right? There are people who are not of particularly eccentric views, right? And they are, you know, they're worried about weirdos. (laughs) That's my central theory of all American politics, right? Is that most Americans are, think of themselves as normal. They're worried about weirdos, right? And the party that wins is the party that can convince the you know, that set of people that the other party is too controlled by weirdos to be mm-hmm. trustworthy. Right. And yeah. I think that's what just don't Biden be crazy to Trump. Yeah. yeah. Right. right. They simply said, look, you know, you know, you don't want that. You don't even want any more of that, you know, Trumpian weirdness. Right. And again, it was enough voters who just thought that was just too eccentric and extreme and they didn't want any part of it. Right. And the Democrat Party. Right. It obviously seems increasingly like um at least you know, they're, they're worried about crossing people who look to normal average Americans, right? Which there's a lot of African-Americans and lots of Hispanics as well, right? Like, they're just people who seem like they're operating in a moral universe that seems very different than the one that they're in, right? right, right. And that's, I think, the big, de- you know, and again, that's what I feel, feels disappointing to me about Biden, right? Is Biden's whole promise was that he could convince the American public that the democratic party was the party of normies. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think increasingly he's losing that ability to do so.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. All right, Steve, tell us, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. We went a little long, um, and, uh, to be continued as, as they say. Um, but I think, for, for the poli wonks, at least out there, I think this was a great conversation, you know, we'll see. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Jonah. Happy to come on anytime you, uh, you invite. me.
1: Okay. So, uh, that's it for, um, today. Uh, thanks to Steve Tellers for, for coming on. Um, as I discussed with him at the end of the show, um, after we stopped recording, you know, um, I think we kind of, as I said to him, you know, we kind of started from the third square on the game board rather than from square one to sort of explain where he was coming from and this idea that he was talking about. But, um, you know, uh, we, one of the things we often hear from listeners is we want more deeper wonkiness. And I think we, um, we've, we fulfilled that mission today. So, um, And I'll, I want to noodle some of his arguments a little bit more, but, um, I always like talking to Steve. He's a very smart guy. He knows a lot of things. And, um, and I'm sure I'll hear from you guys about it as well. So with that, uh, that's all I got. Please come on by the dispatch. Please check out our wares. Uh, Uh, the morning dispatch guys did a great thing that actually advanced our understanding of, uh, the gain of function research today in the morning dispatch. And if you were a subscriber, you'd be able to read it. So... Um, Please do that. And thanks again to everybody, all the normies out there, and also all the uh, non-normies of goodwill and good cheer. And with that, I'll see you next time.
0: No, you won't. This is a podcast.